U.S. Army Sergeant Bo Bergdahl is awaiting sentencing after pleading guilty to desertion and misbehavior before the enemy, which could land him in prison for life. We'll discuss how Barack Obama got us into this mess. Then, Amber Athey and his eminence, Paul Bois, join the panel of deplorables to talk about the woke UPenn TA who refuses to call on her white male students, lucky kids, vicious dictator and World Health Organization goodwill ambassador, Robert Mugabe, and Snoop Diggity Doodap's latest hip-hop ditty, Make America Crip Again. I'm Michael Knowles, and this is The Michael Knowles Show. We have so much to get to today. We have to analyze this Bo Bergdahl thing because everybody forgets about these really important political moments like five minutes after they pass and they let Barack Obama off the hook. So we have to get to that. But first, this is a very good day because we have a new sponsor. Marshall, you still have a job for another week. We have a sponsor. The yeah, lights are staying on. <laughs> We've got Skillshare. Skillshare is an excellent sponsor. One nice thing about doing this show, other than not having to do any like actual work anymore and just talking all day, is that we get uh, free trials of a lot of these great products. Skillshare is the one that is going to change my life, and it'll probably change yours too. It is uh, uh, it's a basically like the Netflix for learning new things. So you know, if you want to get a leg up at work, if you want to take your career to the next level, or if you just want a side hustle, you know, you've got your job, you like your job, but you've got a hobby that you're doing, maybe you want to make a little money on the side, or for me, you want to get better at everything you're doing, you got to check out Skillshare. They have a gazillion classes, they have uh, over 3 million members and more than 17,000 classes. That's a real number, 17 classes at your disposal if you sign up. You know, it's, it's the Netflix for online learning, classes in graphic design, DSLR photography, social media marketing, digital illustration, and much more. They have classes in writing, which I'm now going to need to take, obviously, uh, now that I'm required to write an actual book with words, so I'm looking into that one. Uh, they're taught by industry experts, experienced professionals. They're, they're great if you're gonna build your career or you're trying out something new. The ones that I really like are all about how to get faster at doing the things you already do, so I read slowly. They have multiple classes on speed reading, on how to just like inject your brain with knowledge. Skillshare itself is basically an example of this. You know, they'll have a three-minute course on how to pick up the basics of a language. They're really, really good. Um, so whatever you want to do, design, photography, marketing, entrepreneurship, check it out. Uh, Skillshare is giving my listeners a one-month free trial of un unlimited access to 17,000 classes. So it's not like you get to try one and then two lessons in, you have to pay a lot of money or something. You get a month completely free. These classes are pretty quick, so you can get a lot of knowledge in. You would be a big dummy if you don't take advantage of this. It, you know, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them learn a bunch of new skills. Go over there right now. Go to Skillshare.com slash Michael. It's important to put in slash Michael, M-I-C-H-A-E-L, because then they'll know that we sent you, and then we get to keep the lights on, and I get to keep Kofefe in my mug. So be sure to go over there, Skillshare.com slash Michael, and start your free month trial today. Okay. All right. Now we have to get into the news. We've got this Bo Bergdahl story. He has pleaded guilty. And I don't know if you remember him, but Bo Bergdahl is the deserter for whom Barack Obama traded five extremely dangerous Taliban operatives. He was being held by the Taliban. 
He dumped a lot of guys out of Gitmo, high-profile terrorists, to get this guy back. Trump has called Bergdahl a traitor who should be executed in <laughs> typical Trumpian nuance. Uh, and we're awaiting the sentencing now. But it's easy to gloss over all of this recent history. Let's be clear. Barack Obama's radicalism and ineptitude rather, is what got us here. Six Americans died looking for this guy when he deserted his post. Five high-profile terrorists are back in the region, so you know it's a win-win by Barack Obama's standards. And I don't, I actually don't mean that disrespectfully or glibly. This is the deal he wanted. He, this is the art of the deal, according to Barack Obama. We'll get into why he wanted this deal later. But a traitor, a, a deserter back in our country, and five terrorists back on the battlefield, Barack Obama thought this was a good idea. So uh, let's go to Barack Obama announcing Bergdahl's return in 2014. Good afternoon, everybody. This morning, I called Bob and Janie Bergdahl and told them that after nearly five years in captivity, their son, Bo, is coming home. Sergeant Bergdahl has missed birthdays and holidays and the simple moments with family and friends, which all of us take for granted. But while Bo was gone, he was never forgotten. His parents thought about him and prayed for him every single day, as did his sister, Skye, uh, who prayed for his safe return. He wasn't forgotten by his community in Idaho or the military, which rallied to support the Bergdahls through thick and thin. And he wasn't forgotten by his country, because the United States of America does not ever leave our men and women in uniform behind. That's the key. So you see, during this press conference, he's careful with his language. He doesn't say, this is a great hero, we're welcoming a hero home, because he knows the guy's a deserter. He knows that the guy's responsible for six American soldiers being killed trying to find him. But he's building the case for why we had to trade these, these huge assets that were being held at Guantanamo Bay, why we had to send them back to Qatar so that we could get this deserter back in our midst. And, and the last line is the key. He said, we never, as Americans, we never leave our guys on the battle field, even if they're deserters, even if they're traitors, we don't leave them on the battlefield. This isn't exactly true. There is a tradition of this going back even to the French and Indian War, even before the country was founded, where we always go and, and that's sort of the agreement. You enlist to serve the country and we make sure that we don't leave you behind. That This has not always worked out in practice as it does in theory. During the Civil War, uh, there, the, the Union military made attempts to rescue thousands of captured soldiers who were being held in the South. Um, the, the South had this uh, idea, which was if they captured a black Union soldier, they would enslave him. So the, uh, the Union Army halted all prisoner exchanges until the South agreed to treat black soldiers the same way they treated white soldiers. This, this resulted in about 13,000 Union soldiers being killed and dying excuse me, while in Confederate captivity. We didn't go and get them. There were certain other uh, considerations that we had to take into account. Obviously, things are not that simple. It's not an automatic rule that the moment someone is, is in captivity, we send out this battalion and this group of people. There are considerations that have to be made by the military leadership, by the civilian leadership. In World War II, Americans were being held POW in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. You might remember those two cities because we vaporized them. We blew them to bits. The United States government made that decision, knowing that there may very well be American prisoners being held there. But obviously, they took into account the million American soldiers who could have died uh, trying to island hop in, the, in Japan, trying to go 
conventionally and uh, defeat Japan finally. So they made that decision. But there were POW, American POWs who got zapped because uh, we had to make certain decisions and because our enemies behaved in a certain way. Uh, you know, on the other side, there have been tremendous raids. There was the raid at Cabantuan, I'm sure I'm butchering that, in the Philippines during that war. American forces went into the heart of Japanese forces to save 500 Americans. I'm not suggesting that we're not, we don't do this, but it isn't nearly as clear-cut as Barack Obama needs to pretend it is to justify his terrible decision. He goes on. As part of this effort, the United States is transferring five detainees from the prison in Guantanamo Bay to Qatar. The Qatari government has given us assurances that it will put in place measures to protect our national security. <laughs> I can't, I was going to try to hold a straight face for that. The Qatari government is, because the Qatari government, we can really rely on these guys, right? They're going to protect American national security, one of the largest state sponsors of terrorism in the world, tied to the al-Nusra Front, tied to al-Qaeda, tied to Hamas, tied to ISIS. They, but don't worry, folks. We're going to send back some of the most high-profile terrorists in the world to one of the largest state sponsors of terror in the world and one of the richest countries in the region. But it's okay. Probably not, nothing will happen. It'll all go just fine. He goes on. I'd like to say to Bo right now, who's having trouble speaking English, Bismillah rahman rahim Zayabayim. I'm your father, Bo. Um, the people of Afghanistan, the same. Um, Khalifa al-Thani, uh, the complicated nature of this recovery was, will never really be comp comprehended. Um, so that was Bo Bergdahl's father speaking at that press conference. Obama has Bergdahl's parents on either side of him. And I'm not going to beat up on him too much. His son was taken captive. I don't know what goes through a guy's head. I don't know what drives him to think the things he does or behave the way he does. He does invoke Allah at this uh, press conference, which raised a lot of eyebrows. He does have a very kind of terroristy-looking beard that he grew out, ostensibly to understand what his son was going through. Perfectly understandable. There was a deleted tweet that he had sent out which said, quote, I am still working to free all Guantanamo prisoners. God will repay for the death of every Afghan child. Amin. He also retweeted a bunch of enemy propaganda about the United States. This was not a good-looking press conference for Barack Obama, and it raises a lot of questions. Was Bo Bergdahl sympathizing with the enemy when he was in Afghanistan? Is that what prompted him to desert? What are his, his parents, or his father at least, seems to have been sympathizing with the enemy during the captivity, though we can't really know. It, it all, as Bergdahl's father says, it was a complicated process to get this guy out. I think that is the understatement of the century. The, the complications that he's alluding to here are ideological complications, both for Barack Obama's radical ideology and perhaps the ideology of those who are sympathizing with the enemy. Here is, uh, is Mike Flynn before he was uh, uh, thrown under the bus because of this Russia probe. Here is Mike Flynn who had knowledge of the circumstances explaining it. So for the first 24 to 72 hours, I mean, we were in crisis operations, and we were, I was personally diverting every single capability, human intelligence-wise, to signals intelligence, to unmanned aerial vehicles, to space-based systems. I mean, we really turned on to find this soldier. So you, you believe, sir, that he did walk off the base with the intention of meeting the Taliban? Absolutely. 
Nobody now suggests that he didn't. At the time, it was hotly disputed. He's not a deserter. This is Republican propaganda to attack President Obama. Now, he, he did. He deserted. He walked off of the base. Barack Obama kind of leaned into that and defended that at the time anyway. And uh, President Trump, in his typical understatement, nuanced way, made this an, an issue of the campaign. Take Sergeant Bergdahl. Does anybody remember that name? So, so this is the way we think. So we get a traitor named Bergdahl, a dirty, rotten traitor, who, by the way, when he deserted, six young, beautiful people were killed trying to find him, right? And you don't even hear about him anymore. Somebody said the other day, well, he had some psychological problems. Well, you know, you know in the old days, bing, bong, when we were strong, when we were strong. So we get Bergdahl, a traitor, and they get five of the people that they most wanted anywhere in the world, five killers that are right now back on the battlefield doing a job. That's the kind of deals we make. That's the kind of deals we make, right? Am I right? Typical Trumpian sobriety. Obama would be really bad at Settlers of Catan. <laughs> I don't even know what that game is. We got to stop hiring kids to do this show. Donald Trump is there. He's got, uh, if you couldn't hear on the bing bong, he's got, uh, he's making the image of a rifle. So he's, he's suggesting that we kill traitor. We just execute them. Fair enough. Uh, the six Americans that died looking for Bergdahl are... Uh, uh, you don't hear their names a lot. You hear Bo Bergdahl's name. You don't hear their names. It's Staff Sergeant Clayton Bowen, Private First Class Morris Walker, Staff Sergeant Kurt Curtis, Second Lieutenant Darren Andrews, Staff Sergeant Michael Murphy, and Private First Class Matthew Martinek. So six guys go out there trying to uh, find this guy, and we trade him for the Taliban Five, called by John McCain the hardest of the hardcore, all five deemed high risk to the United States. So why did Barack Obama do it? Two words, Guantanamo Bay, underscored in Bo Bergdahl's father's tweet. He did it because he made it a plank of his first campaign to close Guantanamo Bay. He said, we're going to close it. It's not constitutional. It's not in the ideals of America. We have to get rid of it. It didn't happen. He realized he couldn't do it because the worst people on the face of the earth were being held captive there. So Barack Obama saw an excuse to trade five terrorists for this deserter and to bring him back. I'm sure if he could have, he would have traded 10 for the deserter because the, the incentives here were so perverse for Barack Obama. He didn't, he didn't view it as a, a, a letdown to let these people out. He had been looking for a way to empty that prison, openly so, since 2008. He campaigned on it. This is not some crazy conspiracy theory. He told us exactly what he wanted to do, and then we got, as, Don, as Donald Trump said, perfectly. Some of that speech that he gave about Bo Bergdahl was not articulate, to say the least, <laughs> talking about bing bang and a dirty rotten traitor. Maybe he shouldn't have used that language, but he got it exactly right when he talked about Barack Obama's art of the deal. Those are the kind of deals that we get uh, because of Barack Obama's radicalism, because of his radical ideology, an ideology sa that says that we are the cause of a lot of troubles in the world. We're not protecting the world. We're causing a lot of troubles. We need to get out of other people's business. We, we, shouldn't, we can't have these awful terrorists in Guantanamo Bay. It's not right. It's wrong. Let them all out. And, it, th and that's the result that you get. And, uh, you know, unfortunately now there's a new sheriff in town, 
and Bo Bergdahl appears to be getting what he deserves, but we'll have to wait for sentencing. Before the sentencing, we have to bring on our panel. We have an excellent panel today of His Eminence, Paul Bois, and of the Daily Caller's Amber Athey. Thanks for coming on. So Thanks for having us on. Your Eminence, your Eminence, happy birthday, by the way. It was your birthday on Saturday. Oh, thank you. Paul Bois, was it, was it worth it? Six dead Americans, five terrorists in enemy hands. This sounds like a loaded question, but it really isn't, because you do have to take into account leaving a man on the field. Mm-hmm. Was it worth it so that we didn't leave this guy on the battlefield? I would say that the righteous law of leaving no man behind fell completely out the window the second he deserted his uh, his squadron and put the lives of American soldiers at risk. Uh, so I believe the, uh, the intensity of to retrieving him uh, severely uh, lowers at that point and trading uh, five, five terrorists for him, for someone who deserted his, uh, his base and People died as a result of it? Absolutely not, no. But is it worth trying to get him at least? Sure, he's a dirty, sure. rotten terrorist, as, as Trump says, but he's still our guy. Even if he deserts, you can't desert for long, pal. We'll get you. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, maybe we shouldn't have traded five terrorists for him, but should it be the policy of the United States to always go after guys that we lose on the field? Uh, I would agree. Uh, it, it still should be in our policy and our priority to get him back. But, like I said, the intensity by which we do it severely goes down when they desert and put other Americans at risk. Fair enough. And, should, and maybe we don't give up five of the worst guys on earth. Maybe mm. we only give up three. Amber, do people understand that Barack Obama did this intentionally? Do people get that this was a strategic decision? Or will his radicalism be whitewashed by history and he'll just be a sort of amiable middle-of-the-roader when historians look back? I don't think people fully understand that this was clearly just a ploy, as you said, to close Guantanamo Bay, because when he first talked about doing that, the normal person's reaction was, well, what are you going to do with all of these terrorists that are there? And this was a really easy way for him to just get rid of five of them. But the problem is that history always looks more favorably upon past presidents, unless, of course, you're George Washington or Thomas Jefferson, in which case liberals will try to tear down your statues. Um, but I mean, let's look at some of the other Obama era scandals. People aren't talking about Fast and Furious anymore. The only reason they're talking about Benghazi is because they want the incident uh, with Niger to be Trump's Benghazi. So I think this is just going to be another example of things being whitewashed throughout history. And Obama is going to be considered the perfect moderate Democrat. Just on that point, that awful congresswoman with the silly hats, Frederica Wilson, who completely politicized this fallen American hero, La David Johnson, uh, she has said that this is Trump's Benghazi. She's saying that Trump's alleged impoliteness on the telephone, which we don't have a ton of reason to believe was impolite because we've heard other calls of his to Gold Star families, but she's saying this alleged impoliteness, this is his version of, of Benghazi. The best part about that statement is that it acknowledges that Benghazi was Benghazi. It acknowledges that that was finally a Democrat is admitting that was a terrible scandal that rightly plagued Hillary Clinton and and plagues her today. Uh, People seem to be missing that point, that in her criticizing Trump, she's acknowledging how bad Benghazi was. Sad. herself looks so silly because she only has tweeted about Benghazi twice. She tweeted about it once the other day when she said this was Trump's Benghazi, and then she tweeted about it when it very first happened to offer her condolences to the families 
of the soldiers who died. So there's a huge silence in there. So if she's going to sit here and say Benghazi was a big deal now, she's just making herself look idiotic. Hold on. You're telling me that a woman who wears sequined cowboy hats on the floor of the United States Congress, she might look a little silly? I don't believe it. This is the Shocking, intrepid reporting <laughs> at the Michael Knowles Show. Okay, we've got a lot more to talk about. We've got to talk about woke TAs and white males and goodwill ambassador Robert Mugabe. Uh, but you can't watch any of that if you don't subscribe to The Daily Wire. We've got to say goodbye to Facebook and YouTube. To everyone who already subscribes, thank you very much. It keeps the lights on. It keeps my coffee full of kafefe, or my, my leftist tears tumbler, rather, full of kafefe. Um, so we really appreciate it. But come on over to The Daily Wire. It's 10 bucks a month, $100 a year. You get me, you get The Andrew Clavin Show, you get The Ben Shapiro Show, yada, yada, yada. Who cares, right? Who cares? But you get this. And you can't get this anywhere else. You just have to subscribe. It's the only place to get your What's it leftist made out of tears. Today, well, this it, well, it's, it's it's always made out of the hardest uh, metals on earth, at which we have concocted here in the Daily Wire laboratories of crushed up Steve Crowder mugs. So we have con this is absolutely the scientific cutting edge. It holds delicious leftist tears. Now we're serving up a vintage of uh, uh, Frederica Wilson. So we've got uh, it's really good. There's some sequins in there, so watch that that it doesn't get stuck in your teeth. Or your throat, but otherwise it's either hot or cold, always salty and delicious leftist tears. Go over to dailywire.com right now. We'll be right back. So the woke UPenn teacher won't call on white males. UPenn this is the Ivy League, by the way. This isn't Penn State. We're talking about, theoretically, one of the top academic universities in the country. A teaching assistant PhD student named Stephanie McKellop just tweeted out, quote, I will always call on my black women students first. Other POC, that's people of color, which for some reason, that's the nice term, but colored people is viciously racist. So, but POC is that that one's okay. Uh, other people of color get second tier priority. White women come next, and if I have to, white men. The, I believe the the tuition at the University of Pennsylvania is like sixty grand a year right now, uh, but she won't call on the white men. In the spirit of this woke TA McKellop, I'll have to call on Amber first. Is this <laughs> intersectional oppression ideology just the ravings of some kook, or is it widespread? How widespread is this absurd ideology? It's crazy. This specific example is the first time I've seen this, but overall, the ideology behind it, I think, is fairly widespread at universities. What you see is professors and these social justice warriors, they can't just have people of different races be equal. They actually have to glorify and hold the so-called oppressed minority classes above the people who are historically not oppressed in their eyes. Um, so this is just an example of how, in her view, the black women get special treatment, not just equal treatment, because they have had some kind of injustice done to them. Meanwhile, while you said they are attending one of the best schools in the country mm -hmm. at a super high price tag and are probably some of the most privileged people in society. You know, I believe the largest mass lynching in American history was against Sicilians. This is a true story. Eleven Sicilians were lynched in, I think, 1891. It's one of the reasons Columbus Day became a holiday. Does this mean Shapiro has to give me a raise? 
as a Sicilian American, as a partially Sicilian American, <laughs> historically very oppressed? I don't know. I'm going to ask him about it. Uh, Paul Bois. Yeah, only if I get a raise for being a woman. <laughs> well, well, we could uh, raise your uh, payment for the Michael Knowles Show panel of deplorables infinitely because we here, of course, uh, pay nobody anything, probably including me. <laughs> Paul Bois, isn't this just an example of patriarchy and institutional racism? Because I, I never wanted to be called on in class. These kids get a free pass. They don't have to do any class participation. Just the white man getting it, getting one over on everybody else yet again. Yeah, Michael, I mean, doesn't it seem uh, rather counterintuitive to just make the, the white men just, like, sit around and, and be lazy during the class and make all the, the, <laughs> the colored students just, like, have to work extra hard? It, uh, <laughs> it's, it, it's almost beyond parody, you know, how this works. You know, you, we're going we're gonna to show you equality. All you white men, kick back and have a pina colada. And all you black students, now you have to do all the work. Un unbelievable. <laughs> Might as well just uh, raise the curriculum for all, for all the minority students and make them work like super extra hard so, exactly. they, so they can get an A. And do, just, you, uh, <laughs> do you think that this is, because I think most people in America, when they read stories like this, are shocked that this goes on. But I remember, I was in college not too long ago, I was in a place just as crazy as you've been, that this really is what, this is common sense to these people. It is common sense that uh, white male students should be disadvantaged because of historical injustices and the intersectional ideology. That, like it goes, you are looked at as insane if you question that ideology. How widespread is this in elite institutions? And is it creeping down at all in the regular culture? Or is the regular culture just going to vote for Donald Trump and say enough of your craziness? Uh, I would say, yes, it is very widespread in elite institutions. I mean, I went to Cal State Northridge, uh, and even it was prevalent there, and that's a small, smaller college uh, here in California, and I can only imagine how bad it, it gets in you know, Ivy League and elite institutions uh, like UPenn and Yale and Harvard. Uh, it's just widespread there. And then in terms of how it trickles down to the, the broader culture, I mean, that, that is an interesting question. I certainly think that the institutions, the cultural institutions, have uh, bitten the apple on this. Hollywood certainly has major corporations, uh, Starbucks, uh, Target, what have you. They've all uh, bitten it. And so they try and use their institutional power to translate it into the broader culture and they utilize it to beat people with a club and say, oh, you know, well, we're woke. If you, uh, if you, uh, you want to be woke like us, you know, you want to be, you want to be cool and hip or, you know, unless you, you want to be one of those uh, deplorables over there, then you better uh, sign on to this whole white privilege and uh, gender intersectionality uh, narrative. So that's really how they try to translate into the broader culture. And that's why I think we elected Trump to set, tell all of those uh, people, screw you. Woke Like Bois, that should be yeah. the title of your memoir. That's really beautiful. <laughs> but speaking of coolness and hipness, oh no, I'm sorry, we'll get to that story after. We're going to talk about Snoop Diddly Doodap later. But we have to first talk about Robert Mugabe, the Goodwill Ambassador. Uh, Robert Mugabe has been named by the World Health Organization a Goodwill Ambassador. Uh, the director said, quote, I am honored to be joined by President Mugabe of Zimbabwe, a country that places universal health coverage and health promotion at the center of its policies to provide health care to all. That's from WHO Director General Tedros Adhanom, and he told that to a global health care conference as the WHO made its announcement. In Zimbabwe, one in three children are starving. Uh, Mugabe is the oldest leader or really just dictator in the entire world. He enjoys being compared to Hitler. He has constantly rigged elections. He even won 
quote-unquote, the Zimbabwean lottery in 2000. He said that whites are second-class citizens in Zimbabwe and that they're better dead. This is the guy who is a goodwill ambassador for the WHO. WHO, we will point out, has since rescinded its offer. Paul Bois, does this prove that multinational organizations like the WHO, the United Nations, that they're just mouthpieces for dictators, as we on the right have claimed for decades? Yeah, Michael, I'm actually kind of surprised they uh, they kicked him out uh, because he, he fits right in. I mean, this is an organization <laughs> who uh, one of their founding members uh, was Stalin. Uh, I mean, this is an organization who on their 70th anniversary, they parade a bunch of dictators to talk about the uh, importance of dignity and human rights, uh, people, you know, uh, leaders of China and, and Cuba. I mean, it's, a, it's an organization, half of their 193 members are deemed by uh, human rights groups uh, to be not even free at all and in violation of, of, of every uh, uh, human rights uh, principle Objective. we have, yeah, the human rights principle we have on record. So, uh, I mean, I, my opinion of the uh, of the UN is just basically uh, disband them as an organization, uh, just keep them as just like a forum for nations to come and, you know, debate about their uh, spit spats, but everything else is pretty much useless. Turn it into luxury condos. There's a great cigar bar nearby called the Cigar Inn on 53rd and 2nd. Turn it into luxury condos. Maybe I'll get one there someday. It'll be closer to my favorite stogie spot. And you have made a good point, Your Eminence, Mr. Bois, because I've never heard someone make a positive case for Mugabe, but compared to Stalin, Robert Mugabe's pretty good. Better, Robert Mugabe, better than Stalin. Goodwill ambassador. Um, Amber, doesn't this highlight the absurdity of liberals do this all the time, lefties do this all the time. They point to places with crushing poverty and corruption like Cuba and they laud them for so-called universal health care. Universal health care that doesn't have any medicine, that's rife with corruption, that no one gets to access. I, I was in Havana, uh, some locals pointed to the hospital, they said there it is, anybody can go in and you have to bring your own medicine and your own tools because they won't have any there. You have to basically bribe doctors to work on you because the doctors don't make any money either. Doesn't every tin pot dictator and every banana republic around the world have a whole host of goods that don't uh, don't ever seem to materialize? That's exactly right. I mean, you can say whatever you want when you're a dictator because you also have to imagine the press and the military on your side. So the real story never really gets out there. And uh, you're right that liberals will often overlook the real story behind these promises because they're so desperate to prove that socialism and communism are beneficial ideologies. Back when Fidel Castro died, I went to American University, speaking of crazy social justice warriors, and I interviewed them and I asked them if they thought that Fidel Castro or Donald Trump was a better leader. And they all, almost all of them said that they preferred Fidel Castro because they cited the, yeah, they they cited, like you said, the, the apparent universal health care, and they cited the high literacy rates, were, are, which are also shown to uh, not be accurate. So they're just, they have no examples of actual working communism or socialism, but because they keep pushing for it in the U.S., they have to just go by what these dictators are saying, which is a really distorted version of reality. And they have the press on their side, as you say. The press is so key here. And it, it must be what it feels like for Barack Obama to have CNN, you know, for Mugabe to have the, the Zimbabwean press <laughs> or Pravda for the Soviets or something like that. That is, And that's the worry when we talk about fake news. The worry isn't uh, – I don't think there's any worry right now that we're going to ban 
the media outlets in the United States. The worry is that they're sycophants for Democrats. The worry is that they're just machine guns for the Democratic Party. They're a communications firm flacking for them. And that that's no good. I mean, that's no different than Pravda. So we got to knock them while we can. Okay, moving on to the most important news. Hip-hop crooner Snoop Doggy Puff has a new piece out on our fearless leader. It's called Make America Crip Again. Now, I wanted to play this clip of the random noises and cacophony that he calls a, a musical uh, piece. But unfortunately, there's so much so much uh, expletive in it that we can't do it on the show. Yeah, <laughs> no, the whole no thing, time to edit. Yeah, it'd just be a bleep. It'd just be a long bleep. <laughs> so I, I can quote the lyrics. Uh, Snoop, Snoopy says, The president wants to make America great again. F that, we gonna make America crip again. Crip uh, referring to the gang that I guess he was associated with. Now, this is a marked change in hip-hop. Hip-hop is turning on President Trump now, but hip-hop used to love Trump because he was a symbol of conspicuous wealth and success and something to aspire to. So uh, a, a young musician named Young Jeezy once warbled, quote, and I'm going to change a couple words because I don't want to get yelled at, quote, richest ninja in my hood, call me Donald Trump. There were 318 mentions, according to... Nate Silver at 538 of Donald Trump between 1989 and 2016. Amber, why does hip-hop not like Donald Trump anymore? Well, because he's a Republican. I mean, it's mm. fairly obvious. Mm, uh, most of these it. rappers are good buddies mm. with Barack Obama and uh, I guess to some extent Hillary Clinton, although I don't think she's quite hip enough for most of them. Um, yeah. But the part that really got me about Snoop Dogg's rap is mentioning he wants to make America Crip again. He explained that the Crips were originally founded to be sort of the new Black Panther Party. Um, obviously, what they ended up being was a very violent gang in California. So um, for him to lecture about Donald Trump being a terrible person and with Eminem, too, but then to promote gang culture is a bit absurd, I would think. Snoop's also a drive-by shooting criminal. So, you know, I mean, it's at least it's of a piece when he says we want to make, pun intended, that he wants to make America crip again. Paul Bois, is there anything redeeming about this terrible music? Because I try, you know, people say I'm like an old curmudgeon. I sound like a caricature of just an old Republican who's like, you kids with your hip-hop. But it's horrible. It's just not good. I have so frequently tried to convince myself that hip-hop songs are like, are good or in any way, but I can't. They're just terrible. Is there anything redeeming about it? Well, as Aristotle uh, said, Michael, uh, music... <laughs> I'm glad you don't sound like an old curmudgeon. Tell <laughs> me what Aristotle said. <laughs> yeah, yeah. As Aristotle said, Michael, music gives soul to the universe. And to, to be quite honest, I've always found hip-hop to be a very miserable genre of music. It, it, one, I've, it's, it's way too carnal of a genre. It just, it's all about just, just the beat itself, and that's why if you listen to even like a, a quote-unquote good hip-hop song, you're pretty much bored with it within uh, like two, two or three days, and you never really want to return uh, to listen to it ever again. Uh, so that's one thing. But it, it, in terms of the culture uh, that it's bred, especially when you look at uh, uh, previous uh, musician, black musicians of previous generation. You had soul music. You had uh, gentlemen like uh, Nat King Cole. Uh, so, such beautiful uh, music that, that contributed so wonderfully to the American songbook. And and, and there's nothing that's going to be remembered uh, in hip hop uh, 50 years from now. Uh, it's uh, just going to be considered just like oh yeah, a music uh, genre that came in way. But nobody's going to be returning to the classics of Snoop Dogg. You know, singing about money on his mind uh, 50 years from now. And and you know the the horror 
horrible culture of misogyny that it bred. So I look forward to its death completely. You're a hopeless or yeah. a optimist, rather. I think they probably <laughs> will be looking back on these guys. And you mentioned uh, the, the, how carnal the music is. It's all about sex and treating women terribly. But, you know, you bring up soul music, too. Soul music is extremely sensual, in some ways carnal. But soul music is great. There are a lot of excellent songs in soul and Motown that kind of take you on a journey and they're musically somewhat sophisticated and lyrically compelling and this stuff is just garbage so I even tried I, I tried to listen to Kanye one time because mm -hmm. everyone told me well mostly Kanye just told me he's the greatest musical genius ever so I, I decided <laughs> to see if he was right and the thing is he is sort of good in that he has good taste in music so he samples good songs mm -hmm. and then he makes them worse by singing <laughs> on them so like he even he even uh, wrote a song with paul mccartney wrote a couple songs one is called only one which is really good kim kardashian said it was her favorite kanye song it's her favorite kanye song because paul mccartney wrote it and then he and it sounds really good except for kanye's awful voice but uh, i think that's that's the trouble maybe they have a good sense of music but just they they don't have any talent so uh, it produces this garbage, yeah. and uh, but we'll have to tie that into maybe one of mm. Andrew Clavin's segments, Our Crappy Culture. Sure. Okay, panel of deplorables, thank you for being here. Excellent to have you. Amber Athey from The Daily Caller, His Eminence, Paul Bois, coming to us from outside of time and space, and also from The Daily Wire. Speaking of Andrew Clavin, you got to go over and check out our new narrative podcast. Hollywood is in rubble, and we're thrilled about that. So we have this, it's Andrew's new uh, story called Another Kingdom. It's about a totally failed guy in Hollywood, failed screenwriter who wanders into another dimension and finds out he's the suspect in a murder with a bloody dagger in his hand and a dead body at his feet. Uh, it's really fun. We released it a couple weeks ago. Thanks to everyone who's listened and left a review. We've got like hundreds of reviews now up on iTunes. They're all five-star except for one two-star review. I think that's my third cousin once removed Hillary Clinton. So sorry, Hillary, I'm, I'm sorry you didn't like it. If you go over there, please uh, subscribe and leave a review. That really helps us out. I think we were number 12 in arts on iTunes over the weekend. So it's the cure to the Clavenless weekend. And if you don't like crappy culture like uh, Snoop Diddley Doodap, then listen to our show and it's uh, pretty compelling, I think. And also the last role that I'll ever have in Hollywood. Other than that, get your mailbag questions in. That's gonna be on Thursday. We will change your life forever. And uh, then that's our show. Come back tomorrow, we'll do it all again. I am Michael Knowles. This is The Michael Knowles Show.